from time to time, I, I feel like it's important to just reiterate what is a, a basic concept when it comes to church life, when it comes to uh, ministry, but something that I think we often maybe lose sight of or forget. Uh, it's a healthy reminder also just about our church and what our church uh, is focused on. Uh, there are really two types of, of pulpit pastors. Uh, there are teaching pastors and there are preaching pastors. Uh, the difference is subtle but still distinct in the way that it kind of manifests itself from what happens at the pulpit. Preaching pastors are, are proclaimers. You know, they take a truth, they apply a truth, they proclaim a truth, they dive off of a truth. Uh, a teaching pastor it explains truth. Uh, it's a, Again, I, maybe not a semantic argument, but one that does have a practical manifestation. A pastor proclaims and a teacher explains. At our church, there are times, indeed, where there can be a crossover into a little bit of preaching. But by and large, my gift, my calling, uh, what happens at this pulpit is more of a teaching ministry than a preaching ministry. It's why we open up a book of the Bible and we start chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way through that book till we get to the end, and then we pick another book. And my job primarily is to explain God's Word, to teach you God's Word, to explain some of the nuances, to unpack some of the concepts and details. There are times where there'll be a, a, a transition to a little bit of proclaiming, a little bit of applying. And yet, by and large, I try to let the Holy Spirit do that as He sees fit. This morning, we're going to be looking at a couple different stories Stories that are interrelated, that are within the flow of Matthew's narrative, but don't exactly make for good topical messages. Uh, you might go to a church and hear one of these stories pulled out and then uh, dove off of, but we're going to work our way through the text. And my job is to teach it and let the Holy Spirit apply it, and then we learn together as a family. The reason we do this uh, not just because the Holy Spirit gifts people for this particular task, but we believe that the Word of God has power. Uh, in Hebrews, we're told that the Word of God is living. It's alive. It's powerful. It's, it's a different book. It's a unique book. It's unlike anything else. It is living. And it has the ability to not just impart knowledge, but as you're faithfully going through the Word, the Word goes through you. And over time, you start to see changes. You begin to be transformed. You begin what is called the washing of the word. This thing happens. And so we're faithful to do that. Again, we've been in Matthew 13. We've finished a, a section of scripture that's known traditionally as the, the seven kingdom parables. Transitioning out of that, verse 53, Matthew tells us that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Jose's Simon and Judas? also known as Judah, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all of these things? So verse 7, we're told they were offended at him. 
But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. Now, Matthew says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Coming off of this series of of teachings that Jesus began on a hillside there in Capernaum, a sermon that transitions into a bit of a more private setting about halfway through, probably as they return back to Peter's home. Following this, these kingdom parables, Jesus departs, and he probably travels down what's known as the Valley of the Doves, leading out of Capernaum, out of the region known as Galilee, this area around the Sea of Galilee, making his way to his home country, we're told, which we know to be Nazareth. Nazareth was not a very notable city. In fact, we probably wouldn't know much of Nazareth at all if not for the fact that Jesus um, was from there, that he grew up there. Mary and Joseph uh, originated from the town. Because of a census, they had to make their way to Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was officially born. From Bethlehem, uh, Joseph being warned in a dream of some of the other things that had been taking place regarding Herod and the wise men. Herod getting word that there was a newborn king, a threat to his power. Warned in a dream, Joseph packs up the family, his wife, this little one. They go down to Egypt. On their way back from Egypt after the death of Herod the Great, again warned in a dream, given divine instruction, Joseph finds that it would be important not to return back to Bethlehem, a suburb of Jerusalem, but to return back home to their home country, Nazareth. And you got to imagine that returning to Nazareth was a difficult thing. Difficult because of a lot of the controversy surrounding the pregnancy, surrounding uh, the origins of, of, of who the dad was, Was it Joseph? Joseph said it wasn't him. Mary says it's God. She seems crazy. Joseph is now defending the story. I mean, there's a lot of controversy, a lot of of heartache, a lot of stigma to return home. I mean, of all of the places to go back, really, to be honest, Nazareth wouldn't be very high on my list. And yet, the Lord instructed him to do this, that Jesus would grow up as a Nazarene, would grow up from this town, Joseph sets up shop there in Nazareth as a carpenter. He's a blue-collar man. He's making a living. And they raise a family. Jesus, the firstborn, obviously his mother's Mary. Joseph is a stepfather. We know his father, the origins, being God the Father. Mary and Joseph have other kids. We're, We're given a list of their names. There is a synagogue in Nazareth. We're told in Luke that as Jesus' custom was, he would spend every Sabbath there at the synagogue, learning and growing. He was a church kid. He grew up in this synagogue. Everyone in this town, again, not a very big town, a blue-collar place. Think of it kind of as a, a truck stop in the middle of nowhere. There's good, good trailer park, Piggly Wiggly. It's not a noteworthy place. In fact, there ends up being kind of the accusation of, like, what good? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is an exchange that took place with some of the early disciples of Jesus. 
One goes to the other and says, you've got to come hear about this man. There's this guy, Jesus from Nazareth. And, and the stigma about Nazareth, like, you're following a teacher from Nazareth. Are you kidding me? Podunk, uneducated, poor, not wealthy. Yet Jesus grows up in this town. And, and at this point in his ministry, and we're at about of a junction where there's a, 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 approximately a year or so, 10 months to a year, the cross is in view. Jesus' ministry is transitioning from, from real popularity, which will continue, but there is a growing opposition, as we've seen over the last few weeks. He goes back to Nazareth. And we're given the implication, the indication, that he would go into the synagogue. He would open the scrolls. Luke gives us a, a great account of an example of, of Jesus' teaching ministry. Luke records a story of Jesus going there, opening the scroll, pointing to a passage in Isaiah, a messianic passage, saying, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, rolling up, and they want to kill him for it. You know, Here Matthew kind of giving us a play-by-play of this occasion. He notes the skepticism, a bit of the vitriol, some of the animosity. We will get to the unbelief in a moment. But Jesus comes back, and he's teaching the people. In fact, Matthew says he, he came to his own country. He taught them in the synagogue. And they were astonished. And this is a good admission, astonished. They're amazed. They're flabbergasted. They're blown away. And again, we've noted this, but we'll repeat it, that Jesus was different in the way that he taught the people. Jesus didn't just share the various commentators and the various theories. He spoke, we're told, as one who had authority. I mean, people flocked to hear Jesus preach, to hear him teach. And we're told that they're astonished. And then the, kind of the murmuring, the talk at the coffee shop, is okay, we know Jesus. I mean, they've spent over 30 years with the man. They've seen him uh, as young as three, maybe four. They've seen, they've seen him grow up. He was friends with a lot of their friends. He was a rug rat, you know, riding his bike in the neighborhood, building tree forts out back. I mean, he was part of the community. He wasn't set aside, alienated. He had brothers. He had sisters that he took care of. At some point, Jesus probably started to apprentice to help his father. So when you would have a need, Joseph the carpenter would come over with his boy. Now, some controversy about the origins of this kid, but he's a good kid. And they're familiar with him. There's a relational connection. Jesus probably spent the night at other people's houses. He went to Sabbat with the other students. He was friends with people. At some point, it's likely, especially with the admission here, is this not the carpenter's son? And we have no mention after Jesus at the age of 12. We have no mention in the Gospels of Joseph. And there's some theories about, well, what happened to Joseph? Where did Joseph go? Um, at the cross, you have Mary, his mother, but Joseph isn't there. You have a mention of Mary here and his brothers and sisters, no Joseph. Uh, earlier on, a few weeks ago, when we saw uh, a, you know, a group of this family came and was like, hey, you need to, <laughs> you need to come home for a little while. Uh, it was Mary and the boys, right? But there was not Joseph. Some people say, well, maybe Joseph tapped out and bailed, that he was a deadbeat. I don't agree at all. More than likely... And there seems to be some evidence in some of the early church writings that Joseph died. 
Again, we don't know if it was natural causes, if it had been an accident. Jesus growing up in the bit of the tutelage of Joseph, at some point Jesus becomes known not as the carpenter's son, but as the carpenter from Nazareth, indicating that Joseph was no longer the carpenter and Jesus assumed the family business. As the firstborn, that would have been his obligation. So Jesus is growing up in the synagogue, probably involved in the education, excelling, showing smarts, brilliance. Again, the story of Jesus going to the temple at the age of 12, we're told that they were that the scribes and the priests were amazed at the questions that he asked. In that culture, intelligence was, was marked not by the answers one gave, but the questions one asked. That's how they really marked intelligence. So Jesus was asking questions of the the religious leaders and the scholars, and they were blown away at the intelligence, the intuition. But at some point, his education ceases, and he has to work. He has to provide for his family, for his mom, for his siblings. He's the carpenter. And so Jesus comes, and they're blown away, and they're just, they're wondering, like, where is, where did he get the wisdom? You know, wisdom is an interesting thing. There's a lot of people that gain knowledge. Knowledge is something that one can accumulate. But how one applies what they know is a different thing entirely. In fact, if you want the easiest definition of wisdom, wisdom is knowledge in action. It's the appropriate application of what one knows. Which is why, you know, we have, we kind of, we have, we'll describe someone as being street smart. A book nerd and street smarts. You know, you got the person that, that is learned, but just dumb. Like they know a lot of stuff, they just don't know how to apply it to practical living, to life. But then you got the other guy, you know, who my grandfather, an eighth grade education. But he was street smart. You know, he became a pretty wealthy, successful man. Again, didn't have the education, but man, what he knew, he knew how to apply it. There was wisdom to it. So they're looking at Jesus and they're like, we know your upbringing, we know your family. You were the carpenter's son. You were the carpenter. We know your mom. In other places, they were aware. I mean, even in Jesus' ministry, some 30-some-odd years later, he's still dealing with the stigma of his birth and some of the accusations. Are you a bastard? His siblings are there. I mean, he, they, they know him. They're familiar with him. Jesus has shared in the synagogue. But in this occasion, as he's teaching them, they're blown away. There's wisdom. Wow. And there's mighty works. They admit that there's something to this. But they're hung up. They're hung up on a familiarity. How, where did he get this? You know, I, I've really wrestled with the, the origins of the disdain of the Nazarenes regarding Jesus. And you can, again, come up with various theories, whether it was just the familiarity, and familiarity, the old saying, breeds contempt. Could it have been jealousy? You know, the people in in the audience that grew up and rubbed shoulders with Jesus are hearing him teach, and they're like, well, where did you get this in regards to us? Are you better than us? Was it jealousy? Was it envy? We do know that Jesus makes this admission in, in the context that, that of their offense. He says a prophet, verse 57, is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Basically, that, that, that a prophet is generally honored, respected, given the benefit of the doubt, except for in his own house, in his own synagogue, in his 
around his own people. Why is this? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It just admits that it was the reality, that it was the dynamic. Now, what's sad about the passage is that Jesus went to Nazareth with the intentions of doing what he had done everywhere else, of teaching and then demonstrating the power of his word through the practical healing of people, that Jesus wanted to minister to his brethren in the same way he had ministered to everyone. Now, how do we know that? Well, we're told, again, that Jesus did not do many mighty works. He did not do, indicating his intention was to do. In fact, another account of this passage, one of the other Gospels, says that he was, he was restrained from doing. You see, it was their unbelief that restricted Jesus' ability to do what he wanted to do in the lives of these people. Now, that is a really radical idea. Because we talk about Jesus and his divinity, his Godhead, his sovereignty. That Jesus is not restricted, but is he? Can he? And this seems to indicate absolutely. How so? Understand that Jesus wants to do a work in your life. But the only thing that will restrict his ability to do what he wants to do in you and through you is you. It's unbelief. It's an unwillingness to allow him to work. You see, you got to understand that Jesus is a divine gentleman. Jesus doesn't force himself onto anyone. Now, he will woo, and he will reveal, and he will love, and he will do the legwork. But when it's all said and done, the one thing God won't violate, it's your free will. And this goes in its origins all the way back, in essence, to the garden. You see, God wanted a relationship with man. He wanted a relationship with humanity. You know, people will point out, well, why in the world would God have put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Well, you're really kind of looking at it backwards, in a sense. I mean, God told Adam and Eve, here's this garden, enjoy it, it's all for you. Every bit of it, eat, be merry, multiply and fill the earth. Eh, there's just one tree to stay away from. You know, we, we, we like to look at things, well, 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 why would there be one thing? Well, in the context of all the other things he gave. Isn't that the way that kids are? Kids aren't always like really geeked up about all of the privilege they're given. They're just really upset about the one thing they can't do, right? And we have that nature within ourselves where we get focused on the one thing you say no as opposed to all of the things you can do. And yet God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil into the garden in order to actually have a loving relationship. You see, love, by its very definition, demands the freedom not to reciprocate one's love. Now, we know it all or originates within God. We love God, we're told in the scriptures, because he first loved us. Love does indeed run downhill. It starts with God. God loves you, and then it's as a reciprocation of that original love that we love him in, in return. It's a shadow of the love. We try to emulate the love to the best of our ability, but it's reciprocal. And yet, if you don't have the ability to reject love, you don't have the ability to reciprocate love. But it's just fundamental logic. 
And so we find in this dynamic that God loves us, and we have the ability to do something. We do have the ability to reject his love. And it's in that sense that we're here within these Nazarenes, these people who were familiar with Jesus, Jesus comes to them and he wants to do a work in them, for them. And we're told, and I think it's one of the saddest verses in all of the scriptures, really, that he didn't do what he wanted to do because of their unbelief. You know, there's a difference between unbelief and skepticism. Or even, even what we might say, and I don't want to get into the semantics, but let's just even say doubt. I think that, it, that it's okay to be skeptical of certain things. And maybe even to doubt them. Because those two things somewhat indicate a curiosity, a quest for truth, a desire to know. I'm skeptical, but I'm open. I might doubt, but I'm still willing. I'm reminded of Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas was just said, he said, I just want, I want, until I see the holes and feel the scars, you know, I, I can't believe. And then Jesus shows up, and he doesn't rebuke him. He says, here you go. He wanted a personal relationship with Jesus. He knew that personal relationship couldn't be based upon the experiences of others, even his best friends. He's like, I want to believe. I just need, I need you to meet me here. And Jesus does. Jesus promises, seek and ye shall find. Knock, I'll open. I'm, Jesus is the worst hide and seek player. Again, not to play this out when it comes to kids, but I love it with Mabel. First, she's terrible at hide and seek. She's three, she's almost four. She doesn't really fully get the concept. But I love playing hide-and-seek with her because it's like she, the whole goal isn't for you to really hide. The whole goal is for, you to, for, for, for her to find you. In fact, if you're really good at playing hide-and-seek with a four-year-old, the four-year-old will not enjoy the experience. In fact, it'll be like 30 minutes later, you've fallen asleep in whatever corner you were hiding in, and she's, she's watching Peppa Pig. She's like, I was out. 25 minutes ago. Your Father in heaven wants to be found. The question is, are you seeking? And that's where unbelief, you see, unbelief, again, not to play the semantics, but unbelief is sometimes just a refusal to accept truth. And I think even deeper, it's the, the refusal to accept what you know is true. Well, how could, how could that be a person? I know a lot of them. People that know Jesus is who he said he was, who know Jesus has a plan for life, who knows but for some of the implications of what they would have to let go of. It, it's, not, it's not knowledge. It's, it's, it's not knowing. It's accepting. So you can know Jesus is God. That doesn't get you to heaven. James will say even the demons know and believe. Knowing isn't the same as knowing. I can know about Abraham Lincoln. I can read a lot of biographies. It doesn't, doesn't substitute for being someone that actually knew him. 
And there's a lot of people, especially within like Christianity, Southern Christianity, who know a lot about Jesus. They know the Bible stories. But they don't actually know Jesus. Because they refuse to accept the implications of who he is in their own life. And this is so sad with these Nazarenes that they, they should have been on the front lines. And yet Jesus didn't do a work here because of their unbelief. They wouldn't let him. Well, verse 1 of chapter 14. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, this would be Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, this is one of his sons, a Tetrarch, the kingdom after Herod the Great was divided into four parts. In fact, none of these men are, are technically kings as their father was. Kingdoms divided and they become tetrarchs. There's a whole lot of backstory with the Herodian dynasty that I'm not going to bore you with. This is one of the sons, Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. So word is, has, has spread. Again, this is the period of popularity. The world is abuzz, this region anyway, about Jesus, about what he's doing, about what he's saying, about what he's teaching. Jesus is blowing up. He's trending. There's a following. And Herod, the Tetrarch, he hears the reports of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore, these powers are at work in him, speaking of Jesus. Now, pause for a second, because if we've been working our way through Matthew, you're like, well, <laughs> that was a bit of information we didn't know anything about. John is now dead. How did that happen? Now, Matthew's about to tell us. So he's about to give us the backstory. He starts by giving us Herod, this update on Herod, the powers to be. Herod will come back in our story. There will be an exchange that Herod has with Jesus, where Jesus utters not a word to him. But in this context, Herod hears about Jesus, hears the reports, maybe even had been exposed to some regard to an actual sermon that Jesus gave. We can't say that with, with, with certainty, but it's definitely, uh, there's definitely an implication to it. He's like seeing Jesus snap. This is John the Baptist resurrected, which is ironic because he's a Sadducee, doesn't believe in the resurrection. But in this moment, he's like, the only explanation I have for this is that this is John the Baptist resurrected. That this guy, Jesus, whether it's John reincarnated or he's been filled with the spirit of John or something, but the power, this is all back to John. And this freaks Herod out. He's not cool with this. We'll, we'll, we'll see why. I will add, and this goes back to, I believe it's, uh, it's Origen, one of the early church fathers. Um, keep in mind, John the Baptist was cousins. Uh, with Jesus. They were cousins, first cousins. In fact, there's the story that's presented for us, <clears throat> and I believe it's Luke's gospel, of Mary, after getting the news that she's pregnant, she goes and spends time, really the third trimester, with Elizabeth. They're related. And then when John, who's in the womb, when Mary shows, she, he jumps, he, he senses the presence of, of the Messiah. There is a theory, again, this does date back to early church history, that part of what might be driving Herod's paranoia and this position that John, 
that Jesus is the reincarnation of John is that because they're family, and again, you can go with the way that genetics work and that Jesus had a lot from his mother, his mother's side, that they looked alike. And thus that, that Herod is freaked out because there's now Jesus, and he looks a lot like John, and he's like, wait a second. Now, what happened to John? Well, Matthew now kind of backtracks for us, and he, and he fills us in on some information. We're told that Herod <coughs> had laid hold of John and bound him. So he was arrested. And he put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, we already knew that John had been imprisoned. Uh, if you refer back a few weeks ago to John sending his disciples. He has a crisis of faith. He's struggling. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the forerunner. He's been arrested. It's okay. Jesus is going to break him out. The kingdom's coming. He's going to establish a rule and a reign. This is only temporary. The longer it goes, for about a year, John starts to be a little wayward. So he sends his disciples. He asks Jesus, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus, you know, this expert reply was, 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 look at what you've seen. And he goes through all the things. You tell John what I'm, what I'm doing. Now, John, don't get hung up on the things I'm not doing that didn't fit, fit your expectation. Look at what I am doing. You reached the conclusion. Now, John was in prison, probably gets this boost of encouragement, but he's been arrested by Herod the Tetrarch for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, we have all kinds of controversy here. So Philip is another one of Herod the Great's sons. He's another one of these tetrarchs, Philip and Herod. Philip, his wife, is Herodias. Well, brother starts macking on sister-in-law and is like, come hang out with me now. So there's this huge scandal within the kingdom. Herod takes his brother's wife. Herodias leaves her husband, who, again, happens to actually technically be her uncle. Another story. Leaves one uncle for the other. I know. You study that on your own. And John. So John has paved the way for Christ. John has been in the, in the, in the, in the Jordan River Valley. He's been... Preaching repentance of sin. He's paving the way for Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene, and John's like, my job has been accomplished. My role has been fulfilled. I, I need, John even says, I need to decrease so that Jesus can increase. And whatever disciple would leave him to go to Jesus, he encouraged it. But in the course of all of this, John was pretty famous. Just like Jesus, the religious establishment there in Jerusalem was sending representatives to check out this wily looking prophet dressed in camel's hair with locusts and honey in his beard. I mean, he's a, he is a hippie. And Herod comes down, and there's some interactions, and we're told that John calls out this illegal, immoral relationship. We'll read on. Verse 4, because John had said to them, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they count him, counted him as a prophet. And the language here is that this wasn't just like a, a one-off rebuke. 
But this was like a consistent thing that was going on. Like John's kind of becoming a, a pest, a nuisance, and he's pricking the conscience of people in power. He's like, this relationship's sinful. God's not behind it. You claim to be Jewish to, a, to an extent. You claim to be religious, but God is not behind this. This is an abomination. You should repent. I mean, John is constant. Every time they put a microphone in his face, he's repeating the line. I mean, John is definitely going after the man in power. And to some degree, picking a fight. And Herod hates it. Now, in another passage, we're told that, that Herod recognized that there's something going on internally with Herod. That he knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows this is immoral. He knows this is wicked. He knows that John's a good guy and a righteous man. And, and he wants to silence him. He wants to put him to death. Herodias is nagging him. Would you do something about this? But Herod's afraid of the multitude because they love John. They were behind John. Didn't want to start any type of unrest or revolution, any type of revolt. Not good from the perspective of the Romans. It's your main job. Keep the peace. And so he has John arrested. He's bound. He's thrown into prison. He wants to kill him, but he can't out of fear. Well, we're told, verse 6, that when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. This would be Salome, we're told in another passage. And the suggestion here, so there's this big party taking place. The dance, there's a, a, at least a suggestion of some impropriety or some, a bit of scandal here. Uh, this was a, a dance that was a bit sexual in nature. I think we're given the PG version here. So she comes in, she dances before them, and Herod's pleased by it. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her what she might ask. Again, we're told that he actually offers her up to half the kingdom, which, again, is just ironic because he doesn't own the kingdom. Rome is let. I'm sure Rome wouldn't be pleased that he gave half of his kingdom away to Solomon. That's not going to go over well. But he makes this rash oath. So she, having been prompted by her mother, so this was all planned, said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. <laughs> I'm sure he was. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, so the peer pressure, he's on the spot, he commands that it be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter, like a serving dish, and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then the disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. There's a lot of directions you can go with such a, a tragic story. Herod defying his conscience. You got to take one step back to it all and realize that John the Baptist wasn't just trying to, to poke the bull. He was speaking God's word. He was speaking truth. I mean, he was God's representative. And he's speaking what is true to Herod. And Herod knows it's true. Again, an example of unbelief here. He knows it's truth, but he's acting contrary to it. And he's afraid of the people. And he's being pulled by this wicked woman. 
It was very similar. Again, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's very similar to the the tale of, of the very power couple that Elijah had problems with. The wicked queen Jezebel. But here we have this story. Herod. Doing what he knew was wrong. He's sorry about it. Sorry, not sorry. Because John the Baptist loses his head. My my purpose is with this particular story and the angle in which I want to try to unpack a bit is more from the angle of, of the hero. And that's John. Again, somebody that within our travels through the Gospel of Matthew we have some familiarity with. Somebody that we've been introduced with, somebody we've kind of walked with. A good man. A man that was born with a calling, a commission, an anointing. A man obedient and faithful to God. A man that was willing to say the truth, even if it cost him. Even if it resulted in opposition. An attack. Persecution. John, a man real has this expectation of Jesus. This is what I'm expecting you to do as the Messiah, to start a revolution. So that even if I've been arrested and I'm in prison, it's okay, I'm going to be out. I'm your man, I'm your guy, we're family even. And he gets this subtle reminder back from Jesus, John, it's not about what you think. Like, don't allow, don't allow those moments when you expect me to work a certain way and I don't to drag you down. That's an exhortation for us, isn't it? So often we expect Jesus to work in our lives in a certain way, and when he doesn't, we have a crisis of faith. And what does Jesus do? He does the same thing he does with John. He says, hey, get your eyes off of what you think I should be doing. Last I checked, I'm God, you're not. And look at what I am doing. And often when we look around our life, our lives at the things that God is doing, we get our, our eyes off maybe the thing he's not. And it places it in context, and we take a step back, and we say, we're on holy ground. You're God, and I'm not. You work in your way, and it's always perfect, and I have to submit to that. John, a real dude. And he's back in prison. He's in prison. He's been in prison for a year. Again, not for doing anything wrong, not for doing anything immoral. He hasn't been canceled because of his own stupidity or sin or immorality. Jesus says he's the greatest of all of the prophets. And in this moment, can you imagine, there's John, he has no idea this party's happening. He has no idea that that Salome has hatched this plot with Herodias, her mother. He has no idea that that there was the suggestive dance and 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 an ill-rashed oath given. And that it, the instruction, he just hears the footsteps come down. He hears the the door open. Could he have thought in that moment, this, I'm going to be let go, I'm going to... The Lord's answering my prayer. I'm going to be set free. Righteousness wins in the end. I'm vindicated. And then the sword is swung. But don't feel sorry for John. Because John, in in an instant, in a flash, had his prayer answered. He entered the kingdom. And he entered glory. And he was freed from a prison cell. Now, is it the type of liberation that he would have maybe drawn up for himself? Would that have been the path out? Maybe not. 
but it was his path out. There's a way that the, 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 the text is structured here by Matthew that you probably completely missed through a cursory reading of it, but something that's worth pointing out. I'm going to read it again and see if you can note it. Beginning with verse 10. So Herod sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter, given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. Then the disciples came and took away the body and buried it. You know, they come and they execute John. Notice Matthew doesn't say John's head was placed on a platter. Nor does Matthew say that John's body was taken by the disciples. Wait, wait a second, Zach. But we know it was his body, like it was his head. That's the, whole, that's the whole story. Do you not have reading comprehension? Of course, it was his head. It was his body. This was, no, 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 no. I, I think that there is, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, something inspired. Because the moment the sword was swung, John entered glory. That's not his head anymore. And that is not his body anymore. John is not there anymore. John has been liberated and set free and healed and whole and in the kingdom. You know, I, I don't know how you feel about it. So over the last year, I've had two grandparents pass away, Big O and Carol, within the span of a few months. And I absolutely hate, I mean, funerals generally are a drag. Um, they're a downer. Um, I like it when it's more of a celebration of life, which is what we've tried to do with, with both of my grandparents. And I, I really don't even mind the, grave, the graveside service. You know, there's something about kind of the closure to it. But there is a part of our traditional way of doing a funeral that I, I absolutely can't stand and it's the viewing are, are you cr ever cre are you creeped out by a viewing i am absolutely unequivocally creeped out by the viewing i just don't like it and jessica and i made the decision that um we weren't going to go see big o or carol we, we went to the viewing to be there with family but we stayed out of the room and we weren't going to let our kids we weren't let because why because that's not Big O. That's not him. This thing is not me. I am something much deeper, something that is eternal. You know, Paul describes this thing, he describes it as a tent. It's a good way of looking at it. And your tent sometimes leaks. <laughs> There's sometimes some dry rot. You know? Your tent might be breaking down a little, but it's a tent, and our tent gets replaced, but it's just a tent. You see, for John, here he is in prison. Lord, get me out of here. Lord, give me escape. Lord, I, wanna, I, I can't wait to see the kingdom. And Jesus is like, yes, yes, and yes. Here you go. Boom. And his prayers were answered. Now, the way that we look at it, oh, what's a tra what a tragic ending. Oh, it wasn't. I don't know if you know this. We all die eventually. Deaths, the stats are really solid. I mean, you can lift and tuck that tent as much as you want. 
and you can work out that tent all you'd like, at some point the tent's going to be like, I'm done. Put me in the ground. But that's not you. John was executed. His head was brought. His body was buried. That wasn't John. In fact, he was set free and his, and his prayers were answered. Mabel, <laughs> I guess she got a glimpse of Big O. So recently she's gone through this thing where she like, so Jess was giving her a bath the other night and she just got sad. Like baths are a fun time. But she just got sad. She said, and she got, she got sad. And Jess was like, well, what's going on, May? I just, I just miss Big O. You miss Big O? Yeah, I miss Big O. Okay. Well, you know that Big O, that Big O is with Jesus right now. He's with Jesus. Big O's fine. Big O is, is with the Lord. And one day, May, you too will be able to be with Jesus. And she, she perked up, and Big O? Yeah. And then she got real serious. She goes, they're going to have to put me in one of those cages first. And Jess is like, a cage? Where are you getting your theology? Come to find out, it was the box. And Jess said, no, 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 no. That was just his body. He's been given a new body. And she busted a gut. Thought that we get a new body? Yes. Totally healed and new. She thought that was the funniest thing she's ever heard. The other day, we're just, I'm just hanging out with her. And she goes, yeah, I miss Big O. I was like, you, you d- Dad. I already know he's got a new body. And with Jesus. I said, okay. John. John dies. John was not dead. He was set free. Herod. Herod had some problems moving forward. Herod's hell was just beginning. But John, John's hell had ended. And he was with the Lord. So, Father, Lord, we just leave that there.